Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. We're all about producing content where you can be inspired by and learn from amazing female entrepreneurs and leaders to help you achieve and even exceed your career goals. Before we begin this week's episode, though, it would mean a huge amount if you could rate and review our show if you haven't already. Consider it as your kind deed for the day. And we'd love to hear from you. So why not follow us or message us on LinkedIn? Mention the podcast and we'll be all ears. And now enjoy this week's episode. Hello, hello. We're back. And sorry if you missed us in the past few weeks. Yeah. Sort of sorry, not sorry, really, in a way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because we've been on holiday. And uh, boy, did we have a fabulous break for a few weeks. Oh, yeah. And just to get some hot weather because Sydney's had so much rain. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, actually to be traveling again was just such, well, the actual traveling wasn't a joy because that was a bit of you know, you have to be very patient, but actually being overseas and experiencing other countries again was, and seeing friends and, and relatives, of course, was just brilliant. Yeah, you totally were in your element, but I have to say, I absolutely loved every second too. And I mean, I've always loved being on planes. So, um, you know, 24 hour flights, no problem. Yeah, absolutely. Get to catch up on the movies. That's right. Now, our guest this week is a technology veteran who's just recently made a really interesting career decision and has made the leap from a career with big global tech brands to run a much smaller climate tech startup. Yeah, absolutely. Maya Hari spent over 15 years in the digital media, mobile and e-commerce industries, working in the US and in Asia Pacific with companies like Google, Samsung and Microsoft. She was also the leader of Twitter's operations in Asia Pacific. Yes, certainly huge global brands there. And now she's taken up the reins at a firm called Terrascope. It's based in Singapore where she's CEO and her mandate is to scale the young venture. And just three months in, she's really excited about how it fits both her professional and her personal purposes. Yeah, it's so good when that happens, isn't it? Yeah, and you just don't hear people explicitly articulate a professional as well as a personal purpose that often. So I found that very interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, Maya is super thoughtful and we love how she talks about how she made the decision to leave big corporates to join a startup, how she assesses when it's right to make a career transition, what she learned from her most challenging career experience. And we just love a habit of hers that she calls serendipity reading. Say that again. You can sort of, absolutely. I I love this idea. And you know, I've never heard anyone describe that before. So stay tuned because it's a really great habit. So without further ado, enjoy this conversation with the strategic and thoughtful Maya Hari. 
Maya, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you. It's uh, lovely to be here and thanks for having me. Yeah, well, fabulous to be talking to you. We usually start our conversations just to help our listeners ground who you are by asking you the question, if you had to describe what you do and you're at a dinner party talking to a stranger, how would you do that? So very often at a dinner party, if I'm asked this, I'll start by saying, hey, I have the privilege of leading a climate tech company. And very quickly, we start talking about what what is climate tech. Um, Terrascope really is a company that helps large enterprises become more sustainable as they start to think about goals like going to net zero. And put simply, the company is one that builds technology to help companies measure their carbon footprint and then start to think about reducing their carbon footprint. Ultimately, hopefully, these companies start to really get to a point where there's zero net new carbon emissions that they're putting out in the world. That's an exciting space. I'm sure uh, you get lots of interest (laughs) from those people at the dinner party. Now, is there a story about how you came to be doing what you're doing today at Terrascope? Because you haven't been there that long, have you? No, it's a, it's a relatively new role. So I've been uh, at Terrascope for about three months. But really, my journey with sustainability started about three, three and a half years ago, mostly as an angel investor. I started to think about where I wanted to spend a lot of my own capital investing in companies. And I, you know, I invested in technology. I knew technology really well. That's where my career had been spent for the most part. And then you can't be an expert at investing in everything technology. And so as I started to narrow my focus down, I realized I wanted to find interesting companies in the crosshairs between technology and sustainability. And that's how I'd really started. But the seed for the love for sustainability goes back even a few years before that, when my daughter was actually eight years old at the time and was was absolutely distraught that she couldn't do a lot of the climate marches in Singapore and things like that when Greta Thunberg was marching. And she said, hey, mom, I really want to do something about this. I want to save the planet or I want to do something for the planet. And we started growing a lot of extra plants at home and giving it away in the hope that we'll do our little part, tiny part in inspiring people to protect the ozone layer or to to help uh, reduce emissions in the world. So that was the very, very first kernel for the love for sustainability. And then many years later now, when I thought about how I want to spend my time and my capital and my impact that I want to leave in the world, uh, Terrascope was a perfect fit. Yes, fantastic. People talk a lot about purpose and it sounds as if maybe it's aligning with part of your purpose. Yeah, I think it, it, it is, in fact, the first time that I was able to align professional purpose to a personal purpose almost fully a hundred percent. And to have the opportunity to come in as a CEO for a company also gave me the ability to then think about how I want to build the company from other parts of this purpose beyond sustainability. But thinking about inclusion, thinking about ways we work, thinking about other things that I deeply believe in. So it's really is an exciting moment to be able to think, you know, here's your canvas to be able to fulfill purpose in the most fullest way possible. That's fantastic. And how did you actually sort of really come to find this opportunity? 
I think people in the industry sort of had started to know that I was investing a lot in sustainability tech. So perhaps there was sort of that personal brand that had started to get around. And Terrascope is a is a company that was born out of, you know, a learnt and lived experience by a company called Olam, which is in the agri space. And they had been trying to decarbonize their own supply chains for many years. And they had partnered up with BCG's Digital Ventures to be able to really incubate this company as a corporate venture and start to put a team together. And that's, you know, it's this combination of skill sets of knowing technology really well and scaling that from a young or a mid-stage company to a large one, combined with this love for sustainability that had become my personal brand, which is possibly what attracted the group to come talk to me about it. Fantastic. Fantastic. And, you know, you talked about how, you know, it's also possibly the first time yet your personal purpose and your professional purpose kind of get to be aligned. Had you and have you consciously had articulated purposes for both personal life and business life? Because a lot of people that we work with, particularly in our leadership development business, you know, these are things that they're kind of chewing over regularly about what should my purpose be. And and it was just struck me as really interesting that you you sort of had the, you mentioned those two. Yeah, I, I actually think that my, my, you know, prior to Terrascope, I spent nearly eight years at Twitter. And it was the first company where I had the ability to observe this company and live the values of this company and really feel like it was a very purpose-driven organization. And at its very core, Twitter stood so much for freedom of speech and for democracy and also values of how to build an inclusive organization. So it was the first time I sort of looked at the company that I worked for and said, this is amazing to be in a purpose-driven organization, but then to also think and introspect about my own purpose and which parts of the company's purpose resonate really well with my own and to what extent is there an overlap. You know, And this got me thinking a lot about how there can be purposeful organizations and there can be your own purpose. And there is an extent of a match as well in being able to find that really perfect fit. And so it was very clear that I was was deeply uh, inspired to do things for the environment. It became a very big part of my lifestyle. And so I sort of felt a deep desire to move towards that space and yet keep the amazing parts of what I'd learned at Twitter being a purposeful organization. I love that. Yeah, that that sounds like a great fit for you, as you say. You talked about how you're pretty new, just a couple of months at uh, Terrascope, and you had eight years at Twitter. And, you know, you've had numerous career transitions, as we all do. How do you go about weighing up and deciding what must have been a pretty big decision, you know, to sort of uh, make a change after eight years? Um, How do you go about that process? I think the barometer that I always had for myself through my career and sort of the transitions that I made was, for me, the moment I felt like I was doing the same thing over and over again, and I didn't feel like I was learning as much as a quantum in a new year in the same company, it felt like I was ready to take on either a new role or a new challenge in the company or to go make a career transition outside. And I think that barometer sort of has held well for me throughout because 
I, I find my the, the thirst for learning quite defines me. The curiosity element quite defines me. So that was the first part. But as I made the decision to make the switch this time around, it was very clear that there were a few elements to this. I was going from what is a large company uh, and a large brand to a company that is young and new. Uh, in fact, in a space that is young and new, no, you know, no companies in climate tech are more than two years old but also going to something, therefore, by definition, that is smaller and have to scale, right? And and I think that those are all interesting elements of thinking about the transition. Uh, for me, I actually felt so fulfilled from my, from my years at Twitter that it was mentally a, a really clear path to say, this book, this journey, this piece is done, and I'm ready for the next. But the bigger decisions were really around, am I ready to go to a phase of a company that is much younger? Am I ready to um, sort of think blank slate and scale from there? And I found myself incredibly excited by that opportunity. And I questioned if I had the energy for it, in all honesty, too. And I felt like, hey, yeah, I I still do have the energy and the stamina for it. And, And that's sort of how I thought about the transition as I started here at Terrascope. And Maya, I'm I'm interested, how do you think about risk? Because, you know, there is a fair amount of risk mm-hmm. going from something that's pretty stable, you know, although obviously in the tech industry at the moment, it's not as stable as it was. But going to this new space and this, you know, sort of more startup-y kind of environment, it is a risk. I think lots of people would, would look at it that way. How do you think about it? Yeah, it is. Look, I think any big transition brings an element of change and with change comes risk. The couple of things, I sort of separate reputation and brand risk from financial risk or stability risk, if you will. And I look at both of those separately. In my case, as I thought about the companies that I had worked for, my career has many more of the large names and the brands and things like that in my background. And and I felt like reputation or brand risk was worth every risk taking in order to fulfill this match of purpose. And when you think about the other part of the risk, which is, hey, is this company going to be around in a few years? And um, and is it really going to scale? Is there going to be product market fit? Are clients going to, customers going to embrace this technology given it's so new? I think those are the pieces where I thought about the business opportunity itself. And I looked at how much transformation the world needed to go through to really be prepared for regulations that are going to require companies to take planet and environment into account or to continue to be able to be attractive to employees as they demand for companies to really embrace the net zero journey and things like that. And when I looked at the business demand element of it, I felt like there's room for a lot of innovation in this space and tremendous amount of growth. And then you sort of, I I looked at the backers and I looked at the financiers of the business and, you know, Olam's an incredibly large company that has tremendous experience and, and has a history of backing a lot of young companies in this space. So Net net is there risk? Absolutely. With this move, I think you, for me, I actually weighed up whether the risk is worth taking and whether there's a reasonable chance of success coming out of this, which felt that was a resounding yes for me in that decision. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I love the way you think about risk, you know, splitting it into those two parts, that financial part and that brand reputation part. I think that's that's a really smart way of thinking about it. You've had a really fascinating career. What do you think has been sort of the moment or or the achievement that's been the most impactful for getting you to where you are today? I actually look at it as a series of moments or decisions that were made, but typically they have been in two categories. One big moment was realizing and introspecting and realizing what makes me tick. And there were a couple of moments like this in my life and my career. And I realized at one point I was trying to make the decision after business school at INSEAD on whether I wanted to continue down the path of technology, which I had started working in, or did I want to try something that was more creative, like luxury or design as an industry? And I, and I kept flip-flopping through this. And I had a moment of clarity that told me, I really enjoy things that appeal to both my left and right brain. And the more I consciously make decisions in my career to pick roles or pick companies that appeal to both would put me in a position of success because I can succeed better because it makes me tick better. So that was one. I think the second moment was, or the second series of moments have been when I have taken risk at the right time in my own career. So there was a moment when I decided to move back from the US where I was uh, had started to build out my career for the first few years to really move to Asia and be able to continue that journey with technology as an industry in Asia, especially as digital was really starting to take off in this part of the world. That's when I came and joined Google in India and so on and so forth. And I think there's a risk reward balance that works out most of the times when you take the risk at the right time. And for me, the risk reward has always paid off well, most of the times. And so it's the decisions of when I've taken those risks that have been defining in my career. And how do you know it's the right time? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I don't know that there is a formulaic approach to deciding is that the right risk or the right time. But one of the inputs I use is sort of looking at trends in the industry or looking at things that are about to take off. And it's a nose that I've developed to be able to see around the corners, if you will. It's what I think has made me enjoy investing as an angel investor, but it's also the thing that has made me enjoy you know, the choices I make in my career on which company to move to or which geography or uh, or which sub-industry, if you will. And it's being able to know whether uh, whether I back that or not. Sometimes I go crazy with thinking about what might come next, but normally I, I let myself sleep over it a couple of nights. And if the crazy thought still remains, then it's worth investigating, in my opinion. So n- nothing scientific, but that's that's sort of the nose I've developed. I love that. And moving from sort of like the, you know, the most impactful moment, which was Claire's original question to your really interesting answer there. You know, if we flip to what's been the most challenging moment in your career today and how did you get through it? I have to say the most challenging moment I've had has been being a part of a board in an, in the nonprofit world, the experience of being on that board and chairing that board was so different from every other experience, either in the world of being a board director or in the world of being a technology operator uh, that I've ever had. Um, I was 
attempting to really move the needle on diversity on the board uh, and in the nonprofit company and really came up against such tremendous pushback from a lot of the incumbents on the board. And I, I think what, what was interesting is that I have built my career in what I call modern technology as a world. And in some ways, I had stepped into a very traditional entity and found the difference to be enormous. I don't think I've ever been in tears as much as I have expressing, uh, you know, experiencing levels of aggression or pushback to what I took for granted as a must do, a must, must diversify, must sort of make environments more inclusive. So it's been really interesting to see that and experience that. I think I'm better for it, uh, even though it was the most, most challenging moment I have had. But I, I think I came away having much more of a real perspective around the range and the spectrum of perceptions that exist in the world today and how much change we have to continue to drive and um, and do it in a way where you're able to get through to people. Yeah, I can imagine. And how did you sort of actually steal yourself for some of those moments? I mean, it sounds like it was pretty emotional at times, but uh, you talked about, you know, being in tears and like, how, you know, what was your survival mechanism? I think the survival mechanism is is finding confidence, finding people that you can spar with, who can give you emotional comfort and emotion, you know, in, in some way, psychological safety to be able to share that experience to the extent you can as a board director. And then to be able to actually constructively brainstorm how do you move the needle forward, right? You need time and space as an emotional outlet, but really the agenda is still the agenda. And how do you continue to make progress there? And the big learning for me was that it, it's really an art and a science, right? The science of it is you can have quotas and targets for diversity. You can think about how do you appeal to more diverse board directors or employees for the organization. But really, it's also an art to be able to inspire and have the other people want the same thing that you want and take them along that journey with you. So it's important to have like-minded or really thoughtful people around you who can, who can also provide that sparring and that emotional cushion as you need. Yeah, it's a beautiful blending also the, uh, you know, the science and the art of the left and right brain again, isn't it? It, it so is, I love that. yeah. If you were to think about your own personal habits, what one or two habits do you think make you sort of successful as a as a leader? I think the one habit that has helped me is I've always had a network of people and a desire of getting to know people for what their strengths truly are whether they're in, in the company and the organization that I run, or they might be completely outside of the organization or completely outside of the industry that I'm a part of. But essentially, I think having a ro roster of people that's always sort of this list of people that are in your network and people you desire to work with at some point or desire to bring into your fold at some point has been incredibly helpful in bringing cognitive diversity, very diverse influences of people and being able to hire and execute fast in that fashion. I think the other habit that I have has been just, just reading. I think making room and time to read and read about diverse topics. I have this one fun habit, which I do every year, which is pick a book that I call serendipity reading. Pick a book 
based tr totally by its cover. You know, you don't have to know anything about the book or the author. And essentially, it sparks an element of discovery. And okay, sometimes the books may be bad, but most times the books end up being really fun. And it just helps think about and read about a space that you might have absolutely no clue about. Um, and, and I actually ended up reading a lot about refugees this way. I read, read, you know, a really cool novel about a bookstore in Algiers. And I am so much richer for it because my brain can go in many parts that I would have never, uh, never expected to before. So I definitely encourage people to do serendipity reading if they were open to it. I love it. Yeah, so do I. And so it sounds like you, because I think you mentioned both a novel and a nonfiction book there. So do you kind of just literally walk into a bookstore and just look at the covers of any book and whichever one jumps out at you? Exactly right. It's purely judging a book by its cover. That's literally it. And so I haven't, I haven't tested the patterns to see if I'm more drawn to some types of covers versus <laughs> not, but it's been so fun to do some of this reading. And is it the, the words, the, type, the sort of the title that you judge, or is it actually more about the the visual overall impact, you know, colors, pictures or not, fonts? I am a visual person, so it's it's the whole visual of the book and the cover. But essentially just thinking about picking one, I'll often pick from, you know, different aisles in a bookstore just to mix it up. And so it's really just attempting to bring diverse influence into your thinking and yes, I think I think I'm a visual person, so it might be more visual than than the font or the words. Yeah, I think I I would be that way too. I'd probably end up with lots of very colourful book covers. <laughs> True. I have to go back and look at all the serendipity books I picked. They might be the same. Yeah, <laughs> that would be really interesting. I think a part of this is allowing for network to operate uh, to build organically, but really having the curiosity to learn something about a person's career or what they do or what makes them tick. And it started from very early days in, in the fact that most of my roles have been quite external facing roles in a company. This has helped sort of from the very early days, build a network of people when you're going to have a business meeting or you're going to meet someone around a different topic. But I always also used a lot of my different interests to be able to enable uh, lateral networking. So in, in the very early days when I was uh, spending some time in, in Silicon Valley, I had a love for art. And uh, aside from business meetings, I would also do a lot of meetings around the drop into art shows and we'd have especially indie artists and things like that. And you ended up meeting not just the artists, but a lot of people who also came in to be a part of these art shows. And this is an example of how you can do quite a lot of lateral networking and building of interest groups. But I, over time, I actually developed this ideology that, you know, any meeting could be a hiring meeting or a network meeting, right? You could be meeting someone just at a line in a coffee shop, or you could be meeting someone somewhere else. But it's the ability to strike up a conversation is important. And that, that may not come easily to everyone. But I think you've got to be authentic to your own style, for sure. But for me, it was sort of being able to make conversation and, and have some genuine curiosity around wanting to learn more about what a person does or or what they like, etc. Yeah. So it sounds as if it was really about building relationships rather than sort of using it specifically for networking per se. I think that's right. You know, as you have such an extensive network, 
What's the best piece of advice that you've been given? For me, I think the best piece of advice I was given is whatever you may try to achieve in whatever time frame, add a little bit more time to it and be patient because for someone like me, the desire to see things materialize quickly and efficiently is very, very high. And so for me, the advice that has really worked is sort of to say, if something feels like it needs to get get done today, buffer it, add more time. We, we have often almost a hundred year life these days. So what's the rush? Give it a little bit more time and see how things play out. And I think it has added tremendously for me personally in adding perspective to say, you know, what looks like is taking very long to change or to scale today may actually be completely acceptable, just add a little bit more time to it. And you're able to actually think about this in a more involved way. So for me, that that was the best piece of advice, also because it was the hardest one as a development area over the years for me. can imagine. Yeah. yeah. I'm always lobbying Claire in our business to sort of say, no, we need more time. You're being too <laughs> ambitious. No, I think it I, comes from being in you a tech Googlers, company. us McKinsey folk, we like... <laughs> I don't know. It's it's very funny. I'm very action orientated. (laughs) So that's the best advice you've been given. What do you find is one of the most common pieces of advice and important pieces of advice you give to others? I think the area that I've brought to the table, I often tell people the dream without constraints and then apply the constraints. But when you dream and when you think about what you could be as a business or what your career could be, think without constraints. Because very often we layer in constraints before we even allow ourselves to really imagine where this could go. So almost as a consistent practice, I actually recommend to people, think without constraints, dream without constraints, then apply the re- the realism on, right? And then think about what's what's achievable today. Yeah, no, that's great, isn't it? And it, it works, I think, sort of just equally powerfully, both in the professional and in your personal life kind of domains to be able to kind of really, as you say, not just think big, but think, bl- you know, start with that blank sheet of paper. And Maya, what does success look like for you personally? Success looks like having it all and having me time at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so how do you do that? What's the plan? (laughs) It's work in progress is all I can say. (laughs) It's constant reshuffling of priorities and constant learning and constantly saying, ah, I didn't get enough me time. That's what it is. That's why I'm I'm tired today, or should I really think about another board to add to my portfolio? Do I really, can I really do that justice, et cetera, et cetera. But it's fun. It's fun to be able to do a bunch of things, but not forgetting that there is time to do everything. So do we need to do everything all at once? And when we get tempted, when I get tempted to do (laughs) uh, many things at once, reminding myself that, you know, can I buy more time? Can I do this just a little bit later if, if it means it's encroaching into me time? That's the principle. 
but it's work in progress, as I said. <laughs> I think uh, that's exactly right. Every year I have a, a theme and, and this year my theme is being super thoughtful about how I spend my time because it's sort of similar reasons, I think. Well, Maya, it's been a fascinating and really enjoyable discussion with you today. So thank you so much for your time. If listeners wanted to find out more about Terrascope or you and your journey, where should they go to learn more? I think LinkedIn is a good start. I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Maya underscore hurry on Twitter. And between these two, my life lays bare generally. Brilliant. And what about Terrascope? Terrascope is at terrascope.com. Lots of information there on the emissions world and being able to go the path of net zero. Fantastic. Well, we'll also have that on our show notes. So it's just left for me now to repeat those big words of thank you, Maya, for your time. It's been a real delight. Thank you for having me. It's been awesome. Thanks so much, Maya. I just love how thoughtful Maya's clearly been, you know, particularly around getting to know what makes herself tick and understanding how she can best figure out when it's right to make a career change. Yeah, you can sort of see that she's really invested kind of thoughtful time to think those things through and it's paid off, I think, a lot. You know, I also really identified with her insight that to thrive in a role, she needs things that'll exercise both sides of her brain, you know, her left and right brains, her scientific and creative sides. Yeah, I can totally see that in you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's probably why I really resonated. Yeah, and I know know something else that resonated with you and with me was Maya's habit of serendipity reading. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to try it out. I mean, how much fun to walk into a bookstore and choose a book from an aisle maybe that I don't go to usually and just pick a cover just that I like the look of I know yeah it's sort of like a bit like being a kid in the candy store because it just has a totally different sort of mindset and experience to it oh it totally does and I love how she says I do judge a book by its cover in in this instance of serendipity reading too because it's great (laughs) yeah absolutely but it's a really important underlying point too that I think you know we all do need to sort of consciously expose ourselves to different ideas and industries and opinions and information, things that we might not normally come across. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, particularly in today's world where we we have our reading habits curated for us on social media. And there's so much convergence happening in different arenas as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Sorry, stay tuned for the next episode for a sneak peek into some of what we were doing overseas, exploring immersive and experiential technologies at a world-leading centre. That was so fascinating. In the meantime, stay safe. If you're on holidays or about to go on holidays, have a fabulous time and we'll see you in two weeks. Ciao for now.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.